When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello. This is the Britflix Fryfest preview series 2019. The Britflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen and please rate and review us you can just rate us they all have star meters which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all just click on it and you're done and it'd be really helpful trust me the higher the star meter the more reviews we get the more ratings we get the more the britflix.com podcast goes up the charts please 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 come on i'm begging you now everyone listening Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type BritFlix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and this is the ongoing Fright Fest 2019 preview series. Today's guest is Christian Alva. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Great to be here. Great to have you. Now, we've come to talk about your puzzle of a film called Cut Off. So before we do anything else, <laughs> do you want to give people a brief synopsis as to what Cut Off is all about? Well, it's about a guy who is the leading expert in forensic pathology working in uh, Berlin, and he always gets the very hard cases. And in one of those cases, uh, he opens the dead body of a woman, and inside her head, he finds a capsule, and he opens it, opens it up, and inside is the phone number of his daughter. So he realizes that this body was sent as a message to him, and his daughter is gone, and he has to find her, and there's a kind of a, a puzzle <laughs> that he has to solve, but he can't get to an island where the next body is. The island is uh, Heligoland, mm -hmm. and it's cut off through a winter storm, and he can't get there, so he has to teach his profession to a young girl who, who is a comic book artist. She's never seen a dead body before, and now he wants her to open that body and, and find the next clue. 
So what I loved about this was, you know, having an expert explain, uh, uh, explaining everything to a layman mm. is exactly what we are. We are all laymen in this. I mean, we all know the cliches, but this book, this novel was written by, by a real pathologist. So it was really interesting to get all these details and I was fascinated by it and I loved how uh, Linda, who's the, the lead character, is basically us in terms of how we approached death and bodies and bodily functions and smell and everything. So I yeah, yeah. Now before we, before we get into more details on that, um, I'm doing it's 20 years of Fright Fest this year, of which you're part of that history. I've been been there in 2005 with antibodies. Um, yes. But what I'm asking is, in celebration of that, I'm asking all the guests to give me a kind of a memory or a, a recollection from their own 20th year. So what's 20th brings year to, of what? Of the Fright Fest? Of you, of your, your 20th year. What, what do you remember from being 20? What, what sticks out for you when you were 20? Ah, oh, that, uh, that's fine. I was still in school when I was 20, but I was already um, making movies. Yeah. And it's just... Uh, when I look back, it's just I can't get into that perspective again, but I'm looking I'm, – I'm 45 years old now, so that's 25 years ago, and it's like I had no clue. <laughs> like I was I, – I admire how how daring I was to believe that I could actually do this, and now that I've done it, I think it's even more impossible uh, than before. So the perspective completely changed. To me, it's insane – that, that I'm here uh, and I really uh, am making movies, which was my lifelong dream. I already had it since I was 12. Mm. And it was when I was uh, 20, I was making a movie that is uh, not finished ever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically I failed, but I didn't give up. And, and I failed because, you know, when you're making movies with friends, you always have to motivate them and uh, all of a sudden one of them has a girlfriend and doesn't show up or, you know, moves away or the parents say you're, you're grounded or whatever. Even with 20, you know, when you're still in school, the parents still have a say. So it was, it's just this contrast of how I was making that film, which was a horror film, mm. <laughs> uh, um, and how, it, how I approach it now and how I admire that sensibility of, or maybe it's entitlement <laughs> that you have when you're that young of I'm going to make this and I'm going to be a director one day. And it's just now I would basically go back and say, don't be so certain. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess that's the thing I've, I've noted because I've, I've now done nearly 30 podcasts ahead of, yeah. ahead of uh, Fright Fest. So I've got like a this broad spectrum now of answers. And yeah. what I've learned from that, because what I didn't know going into the start of these podcasts and what I've known now is – Obviously, 20 years of Fright Fest is like an elder statesman, certainly in genre circles for a yeah. festival. That's like old, you know, that's an old man, you know, established and everybody's familiar and, what, and, and, the, and, the, and the festival choose, almost chooses what it that's to do now. Whereas yeah. when we all reach 20, that's yeah. our first kind of step. It's almost like one of your first staging posts in life where you're like, fuck, I'm an adult now. Yeah. Well, you know, I got kind of delayed for me because I was still in school. Mm. So, you know, so because we have uh, um, uh, 13 years of school here and you start when you're six and then I did an extra round. So, you know, I was younger. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, mean, I, I, I went to university, but it's still it's still that idea of, uh, yeah. 
of, of, of having to think about the future. I mean, when you're younger, yeah. you don't, the future's not important because you're just living in the moment. Then yes. you kind of, from 20 onwards, you're kind of going, well, what am I going to do in my life? And like for you, like yourself, you saying, I'm going to be a filmmaker. But at the time, you had no idea what that entailed, but you were determined it was going to happen. Yeah, I, I believed I, I was pretty realistic, but, uh, you know, I wasn't like a dreamer. I knew it was going to be hard work and still you know, I was pushing my luck. But knowing now how unlikely it is, I was like, I, thank God I didn't know that then. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so. Naivety is quite a powerful force, I think. Sometimes yeah, maybe, the, maybe you need it when you're young. Maybe that's maybe nature made it that way, you know. <laughs> Right then, sir. You've, uh, let's get on to your film cut off. Now you've you've already mentioned that this is this is sort of adapted from um, from a novel, um, yeah. and you adapted the screenplay as well as directed it. So you're kind of in a good position to talk about the sort of inception as well as the production. So yeah, did did you? Is this a novel that you kind of just read as a sort of piece of leisure, or was you looking for a, a novel to adapt? Uh, what, what was no, the, what no, was the, it was, was the route it was, to this book. I'm sorry, I didn't want to cut you off, <laughs> even though we're talking about cut off. Um, no, I, it, it wasn't. Uh, um, it was uh, actually very, very uh, irresponsible to read that novel um, because I was shooting a movie here and I got the novel sent by a producer, uh, Regina Ziegler, and she um, basically offered me the adaptation of it. And I usually I'm so cramped with projects and it didn't sound very interesting at first to me, but I liked the hook, so I, I started to read it because um, I didn't want to pass on it without having read like 20 pages. Got you. So I was like, you know, usually if I think something's very viable as an offer, I wait until I have the proper time, but this was, for me, was a quick pass. So I started reading it after shooting day and before shooting day, and what the irresponsible part was, I loved it, and I didn't stop reading it and I read it until the next morning until I had to go to set again which is already this is insane because shooting is so uh, exhausting mm. <laughs> so I you know I skipped the night because of that book and obviously that wasn't an easy pass because after that experience I just had to do it so I was really it was a very tough thing to finance in Germany you know genre and in this case pretty expensive uh, mm. because of the storm and the dead bodies and everything it's not just running through the woods you know and yeah, it's helicopters yeah. and everything so it was very hard and tough to finance and it was a long road after that after that initial read but uh, I loved it and I had to do it and I felt it's it's just a great pitch which I think every genre movie should have so people know what it's about and then it's also a lot of great scenes within that pitch so I yeah I loved it what 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 for you? Because obviously it's it's a skill, isn't it? Beyond screenwriting to adapt a novel to a screenplay, because yeah, it's much know. harder. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was going to. I mean, I've I've done it, and it's 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 kind of it's nice having the characters all ready for you, but mm. but you still get those bits in novels where it goes, and that's because he'd been friends with him for twenty years, and you kind of just. You, you skip over that, don't you? In a book, you don't think you think, mm. oh, that's useful information, but you can't see mm. that. You can't see that kind of thing in a film. Um, yeah. So, what what were some of the challenges about trying to tell this story visually as opposed to just in a novel? 
I mean, the, the biggest challenge usually with novels is that novels are much longer than movies and have many more stories and, and nice details. And this, this novel, particularly after 350 pages, jumped back in time and retold the story from another perspective of the killer. And, uh, you know, I know that, you know, you can do that in movies as well, but not if you don't have the time. And, and also there was, you know, I, I guess we're speaking about a movie that people haven't seen yet. Mm. So, um, we shouldn't spoil too much, but no, we've got there was, spoilers, yeah. yeah, there was a lot more going on. I mean, there's a, there's a backstory now with Linda that, uh, about her stalker and that backstory was an actual story in the, in the book. And, okay. you know, even, even when I, even when I pitched it to the writers, um, because that's another thing that when you adapt something you have, I mean, the novel was written by two guys. So you have two guys that you want to please, you don't want to fuck up their novel because it's yeah, their yeah. art. So, you know, I, I only, pitched only, my... only Kubrick gets to do that, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. So I, I pitched, uh, uh, what I wanted to do and instantly I told them, listen, there's too many things going on. There's too many, uh, uh storylines. I have to lift basically 50% out of the, out of the book. And are you fine with that? And they were very much fine with that. So I was, I felt emboldened to, to do that. And, you know, later they loved the script, but I think it's much harder because especially for me, because I am, I have a big appetite for, for great stuff. And when there's a lot of great stuff in a, in a novel, you basically have to kill some of it. And for me, that's very hard. I know that some people are, are more ruthless than me. But if something's great and I can't have it because of time reasons or, or you know, I, I tend to let go very, very um, hardly. I, I, I just, you know, it's hard for me. So for me, it's easier to, to start with a blank page and, and just keep going because I have a feeling then when I'm on page 100 that I better wrap it up soon, you know, and I won't even, <laughs> I won't even come up with more stuff, you know, so, uh, but here it was just, oh my God, it's still at 200 pages and still everything is in it that I love. So yeah, it's still a long movie. It's two, over two hours. It just, just yeah, enough. yeah, yeah. But I see what you're saying though. So what you're essentially saying is though, you had to sort of, you had to sort of pick your battles as it were to say, yeah, this is the narrative I'm going to be able to tell because yes. there's a through line that works as opposed to, Every tale in the in the in the novel. Yes, there's there's a story that's not in there. That's so cool. That's <laughs> just I, I can tell you. That, but there's a um, a little thirteen year old go- girl that yeah. is being manipulated into pretending she's been hit on a bike by someone, mm-hmm. and and you're with her. You're in her head, and then the guy who hits her or, or thinks he hit her gets out of the car, and she pulls out a, a gun and shoots him in the head. Wow. <laughs> And the guy and you like what? She's thirteen and and he's and the guy doesn't even die. He's just like has basically half a face for the rest mm. of the novel. And and you know the way that was told was just so cool and refreshing and also believable. But because it's not like a Marvel or or, or over the top kind of story, it's very much grounded in reality. And it it felt like that, but you know there was no space for that and there no use. So that's not in the film. I like I like the um the, the sort of the, the, the main playing pieces we've got for the stories. You've got this obviously this this high this high office pathologist guy who's there, you know, Paul has Paul uh Hertzfeld, is that? Yeah. He's mm-hmm. so, but he's also a failed father. So yes. the the dramatic irony of him being the person that can save his daughter 
is is a beautiful thing to start off with. And then you throw into the mix his team, who he's got to help him. He's got the privileged intern, who's about as much use as a chocolate fire guard. You've got... (laughs) You've got, but he's great. Oh yeah, no, he's fantastic, and he and obviously he gets his moment in the sun. But but yeah. but it's it's it's. I'm just thinking more of from Paul's point of view what he's yeah. got. He's then got a squeamish janitor in mm-hmm. in, in a in in a hospital, and then okay. you've got a comic book illustrator who's traumatized mm-hmm. by something and has never. Um, so you've got sort of lovely ingredients there, haven't you? For what for what is a real what becomes a very complex. Um, jigsaw puzzle of a, of a crime being solved yes and you love the four characters that that even though they're you know they're miles apart and and they're very different they kind of work together in a lovely way even in the novel so that that's you know you you wish them well that's mm. to me that's very important in these kind of stories because once the light turns off and they're in the dark and there's a killer with them you don't want to root for the guy to be killed next you you want to root for him to survive mm. you know so uh yeah i no. i i love that array of characters and um they were they, i i can't take credit for them they were already like that in <laughs> now in 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 movies we've we've all seen the the pilotless aeroplane be landed by air traffic control while mm-hmm. Mr. or Mrs. Jones is having to land the plane through instructions. Yes, that's a good analogy. <laughs> so you've given us the first remote remote pathologist examination. So yeah. what was the fun where was the fun in that for you? What was the uh, what was... I love to me that's the centerpiece of why I wanted to make the movie. Mm. I mean there's a there's a, a it's like a 60 70 page of pure that in the novel, mm. just you know, her doing the examination and him being on the phone. And I was like, for me, I, I totally believe that this could be very cinematic and something unique that I haven't seen. And to me, that was the point why I wanted to make the movie. Mm. However, it was very hard to pull off in the sense that many, many people and readers, you know, you have these readers from the, from the, uh, distributors and the network and everybody, yeah. they, they felt it was very long and they were scared because there's no change of subject or there's no contrast with the new scene or, you know, it's a long, long, long scene. So I had to fight for every second of that. But to me, I, I had this vision that I would most enjoy the scene in the movie. And thankfully, when we tested it, you know, when the movie got screen tested and everything, that was the most liked scene. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, my feeling that there, this is something I wanted to see was proven that I'm not alone in this. And uh, it was just that, you, you know, you you feel with her so much. Every reaction that the actress gives is spot on, I think, and, and could be us. And you learn so much. And it is funny because Ender is there, but it's also gross and it's also interesting and, and mysterious. I mean, there's so many things going on. And that, to me, was the key scene for the film. If we pull that off, then the movie is a success. And if we fuck that up, then it's not going to work. So the body had to be, I mean, that body is super expensive because it's not just the typical body that you're building Mm. that works from the outside, but it had to be able to be operated on and cut open. And then when it opens, it had to reveal the inner workings and they again had to be cut and everything. So it was a super, super big, uh, um, uh, 
research and development thing to find out how we're going to build that body. And so we had, obviously, because one of the two writers is Berlin's leading forensic pathologist, we had all kinds of resources. And I went to uh, a lot of, uh, uh, we call it sections. I mean, a lot of when you open the body, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I went to a lot of those because I had uh, super easy access because of him. And I and he's, since he's the boss, he's also not doing his own. He's also um, walking around and gets like the, like a five minute pitch of all the other bodies on that day. Mm. So I went with him on that round, and and in that way, I I think I saw like forty of those, you know, of those uh, sections. So do you, uh, do you do you do you do you think that do you fancy your own chances now if you're ever in this situation? Do you think you yeah. could do the examination? I think I could if he calls me and I. <laughs> I needed to do it uh, on a remote island to save someone. I could do it now. Yeah, not that I. I obviously they they study this for years and years. Mm. You have to study medicine and and have to become an expert. And there's all kinds of legal things that get in the way um, that we try to get right. Like when you see the first time on him on the job, that's how it actually looks. You know, with with a lot of people in this big uh, space, and there's always on everybody at least two fully formed medicine pathologists that mm. have to have their license because you have because one could be involved in a conspiracy to cover up a crime right but two is very unlikely and then there's also usually students and helpers and i even on my crime movies i did this wrong a lot of times where there was just one guy doing this which is yeah. illegal Okay. So, so I learned a lot of things. I, I took a lot of photos. We got the colors right. I mean, bodies, open, open bodies are much more colorful than, than usually movies because they tend to take the saturation and the color out. Uh, because in our cliche mind, it looks unrealistic when they're so colorful. But yeah. I wanted to have that color because it's like, fuck, you know, fat is actually yellow. You know, it's not white. It's yeah, really yeah, yellow. Yeah. It's a bright yellow, you know. It's and and I, I learned all these things. I was like, okay, we have to get this right this time. So that was fun. Now I, don't, I won't I won't be specific because I wouldn't want to spoil it for someone watching it. But I think you possibly used one of the uh, the best use of GPS technology to es escape an impossible situation <laughs> I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, that's also uh, actually all true. You know, people like this is one of really. The this is one of the moments where where um, people go like, yeah, movie logic, right? Yeah. No, but, I was like believing yeah. it all the way. Yeah. No, it is. It is actually true. And it's it, it when when they wrote the novel, which is like six seven years ago, there was like two cars that had this feature, and mm. now it's much more common, and a lot of people are driving their cars and they don't even know that there is this kind of beacon, you know, that, that calls for help. So, yeah, no, I loved it. <laughs> no, it was absolutely fantastic. I was like, I was applauding the film. It was uh, yeah. <laughs> such a great, because you, because the, because the great thing about all kind of puzzle, serial killer, crime solving movies is when, when they're in the corner and you're just thinking there's no way out of this. There's, yeah. We've, we, they've, they've, they've written themselves into the, there's no way out of this corner. And then boom, you're like, no, mm. Now, just going back to the um, to the remote uh, pathology examination, I think I think I mean it's amazing that it was like on paper it was seen to be maybe just too long a scene or whatever. Because in a way, the growth of the character af from from the process of having to do it mm -hmm. is believable from that point onwards. It's like having got over that, and you've got mm -hmm. that, and you've also because the film's already shown as 
a working pathology lab. So we've mm-hmm. seen people who've just walked around past dead bodies like they're walking past cartons of pasta. You know, it, mm-hmm. it really doesn't bother them. And that's kind of the contrast, isn't it, that we, we get to experience in the film is that here's working professionals, here's someone that's <laughs> never... Because, to- you know, we, like you said at the beginning, we, as lay people, are the people that have never touched their, put their hands on dead bodies. So when someone yeah. says, cut open a neck... You're kind of like, yeah. oh my god, and it's and it reminded me how sacred we think of in terms of the human body, even after it's died. Yes, versus and a it kind of is. The, the, when I when I was watching these examinations by professionals, I um, you know, because a lot of people were like, how could you watch that? It's gross. I would feel sick and all that. But to me, there was something uh, ritualistic about it where I thought, okay, here, like for example, my first body was a, a young girl who had uh, committed suicide the day before. You know, she hung herself on, on a cable on, on some tractor in the field and she was found. And then, you know, it was the, the rumor had it, you know, they get the police report uh, uh, next to the examination table. So they look it up to see if everything matches um, because basically every suicide will be uh, checked for if there, if it was actually a murder, mm. right? So, they, you know, obviously they cut her open and take out everything, but they were very respectful in a way. And I thought, you know, here's uh, uh, um, four professionals. Two of them are, 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 you know, at the end uh, on the height of their career, and probably their education costs like two million bucks each. Mm. And you know, there's this girl that that thinks nobody cares, and she kills herself. But we, as a society, almost as a ritual. We check, you know, we take her, we, we check every inch of her body. We check, uh, if, was she really a drug addict? No, she wasn't. So that was, for example, a rumor that could have spread, but now, no, you know, that wasn't turned yeah. out to yeah. be true. And then, you know, they check if there's some asshole who basically did something to her that she didn't deserve or if she really wanted to die. So, and it was an actual suicide. Uh, that was the final result. There was no foul play. But to watch these highly trained professionals, by the way, a lot of them are women now, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the majority. <laughs> and, um, and, and take this care. I mean, think of some countries where basically no one would care and check. So I loved that I live in a country where this is, uh, you know, just uh, mandatory and normal. And the same with all the other, you know, there's like a lot of alcoholics that just die alone in their apartment and nobody knows what happened to them because they're found like four weeks later. And every one of these people uh, gets this treatment. Everyone gets this very, very expensive, very respectful, almost ritualistic handling of their death. And Mm. uh, to me, that was comforting. And to me, even to think that I would one day maybe lie on that table wasn't a spooky thought. It was somewhat comforting thought, you know. So. Now you you you, you meant that obviously that the, the name of the film is cut off and that's because the island and the weather. Um, yes. Do you want do you want to talk about some of the chat? I mean, and you mentioned about the the budget being sort of enhanced because of things like the weather you having to create. Can you talk about yeah. how how you manufacture those extreme weather conditions in film? Well, most of it, I mean, the first decision was to go at the worst time possible to actually have a lot of the rough weather. So, mm-hmm. uh, which is in, it has its own challenges because obviously everybody is on the outside in January on an island in the North Sea and is freezing. <laughs> so, uh, and also, we, you know, this, this island is really, there's no, uh, no cars on it. There's no, there's a lot of it is, um, uh, um natural, uh, 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 sanctuaries where you can't bring any 
uh, any of your own equipment. So it was uh, that was a hard decision, but it gave everything that we enhanced this believable look because it was actually really cold. There was actually rough winds. Everything's moving. Everything is really dark. And then we put on wind power machines. So the the, the actress, uh, you know, already being freezing, uh, freezing, and then she exits the trailer, goes to set, is already cold, and then she calls me a motherfucker because I'm turning on the, the big jets. <laughs> <laughs> She's lovely, but, you know, she had to, I mean, she had the right to scream at me in front of the tanks just to be mad that she's that cold and um yeah and then obviously we we had to um extend some of it with cgi um but everything's real like even the cgi is not 3d it's it's uh actual uh footage that's just spliced onto onto what we've shot you know so that's that and then we had um is that of interest then is that is that footage you went and got and then spliced in or is that footage that's available and you can splice in no, mostly it's shot footage because okay. sometimes we had like it's not possible to to wait in the hotel and say ah oh, no there's a lot of wind now let's shoot you know that's not possible because you have to have the actors there on standby and everything it's way too expensive but what we could do is we could send a second unit whenever there's lots of waves and big storms and so there was a lot of it is second unit material material without the actors that spliced in and sometimes for a specific wave or a specific thing it's also stock footage where we just took the wave and and used it Mm. that's so sometimes working but uh the much more expensive thing was the snow than the than the storm and the snow is uh done on set uh, i'd say more than 90 percent oh really yeah and um that's uh i forgot the company's name i think it, it was some kind of punny like a punny name i maybe i remember it later but uh anyway it's a is a british company that now has a branch in germany that is uh doing all the snow for like game of thrones and harry potter and all these movies and they specialize in creating fake snow like on the ground on the on the lake in the air coming down it's all different depending on the situation it's never just one solution like there's many many different ones mm-hmm. and then then there were parts where we actually went uh, and had some snow like where the where, you know the situation you just described in the woods where mm-hmm. there was the gps yeah. location that's very remote that snow is mostly real with some a little bit of snow added by by them Mm-hmm. And then um, I was still not happy. I still didn't have the feeling that the, the winter was quite severe enough. So I just basically took my DP, took the, the, the hero car, and we together with, with one assistant, just the three of us, drove to Austria and the Czech Republic and some other places and shot driving shots or even the stunt where the where the car takes a strong turn into the woods and mm-hmm. that's a it's a drone shot. Yeah. I hired a local drone guy and I drove the car myself, which is like a half a million dollar car or something. Wow. So I was super scared. But just I was just not happy with you know, I still felt that that the fake snow needed the real snow to to basically blend everything together and make you not think about the snow. So oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so that was basically and, and these kind of things I'm only doing because you know, you asked a question about being 20 years old earlier. Yeah. That's the kind of shit I'd, I'd done when I was 20. So I don't have any kind of uh, uh, barrier of even on the on a $5 million movie to just say, let's just drive to check the three of us and, and shoot for a week. You know? yeah. 
and just do it ourselves, you know, because you can't afford um, a whole team to go. And so I, I usually solve some problems by just going back to amateur league, you know, even with the big budget things. No, well, it makes it makes sense. I mean, I remember. I mean, it's it's with bigger pictures. It's not always weirdly. It's the more money you have available. It's not always easy to improvise, is it not? Because schedules are signed off, and yes. you're not you're not allowed any wriggle room, are you? Whereas, yeah. obviously, an independently financed movie, you've got to make it work, haven't you? And, and got to achieve what you've just got to achieve the film. How you get there, no one's going to question it if it achieves the film, I suppose. Yes, but the problem was when I became a professional and, and you know, very quickly, right after Antibodies, I, I went to Hollywood and did the Rene Zellweger movie mm. for Paramount and, you know, I did Pandorum and, and I, what I learned was that it wasn't even uh, welcomed and appreciated, this kind of, ah, oh, let's just do it, you know, it will cost us nothing. Uh, it's just that it doesn't work when you're just the director. So that's why I became my own producer because now I can take the risks and, and and do some stuff that usually if I've just been hired, the producers, the traditional producers are scared of, you know, because for example, I could have crashed the car, mm. you know, <laughs> and then all of a sudden your DP, your director and the camera equipment is stuck in somewhere in the Czech Republic in some remote woods and, you know, you have a situation. So they, they don't like these kind of things. And I was like, oh, come on, I'm not going to crash the car. And since I'm, you know, now, now, now a co-producer, you know, I basically say, you know, you did the I, risk assessment as well. I, I, you know, it's my own risk. You know, it's my problem. No, because I, I remember, I remember um, George Romero talking about this, about when he made Land of the Dead, which was his only studio picture. He couldn't mm -hmm. believe how little he was able to improvise. Yeah. As it's crazy, especially when you work in Hollywood and you have these very, I'm very much in favor of unions and I think they're essential, but they've taken it very far in, in the States, you know, it's like you can't pick up a hammer and, and put a nail in the wall because you have to call someone. And, uh, you know, that's weird to me, you know, especially coming from amateur filmmaking. Like the first six unfinished projects were all amateur films. And what turned out to be my, my first, my debut, so to speak, you know, before Antibodies was actually one of those uh, amateur films that just got barely professional enough that it got a release and turned out to be my first movie. Yeah. It was never planned that way. You know, Curiosity and the Cat, it's called. So, you know, I come from that, from that spirit of doing things yourself is faster and quicker and oftentimes better. And now I combine the two things. Like I have, I have sets where I say, you know, for this, you need all the professional, all the gear, you need the high production value. You need better, better to have 10 security people than something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's some other stuff where I shoot documentary style and I go like, just take the actor in the middle of the road in Istanbul, hide the camera and see what happens. And, and I combine these two things in my projects to get a bigger value. You know, people sometimes say that my movies look a lot of uh, a lot more expensive than they are. Mm. But the funny thing is the way that I get this is by becoming much more amateur than other people in a way. You know what I mean? So, so that, so that the willingness to allow the happy accident to happen is where you get the, yeah. is where you get the interesting stuff. Yeah, because but but you have you have a lot of. You, I mean, you, obviously the risk is higher. Obviously, yeah. there could it could happen that when you have your actor in the middle of the road and nobody's close by and there's like one million tourists, it could happen that they recognize them and they they interrupt the shoot and you know all kinds of mm. things. And there's many many examples of what could go wrong, but. 
I, I feel, I mean, I'm, I'm, you have the 20th year of, of FrightFest, I have the 21st year of, of being a director, like in a professional <laughs> So I think I have a, a good grip on reality of what is really risky and what is just too risky for the bean counters, but not for me. Got you. Now, when you, you mentioned about your, your, your actor telling you to piss off because you're, it's cold and you're going to turn the jets on. But, mm. but thinking about directing those moments where you're already asking the actor to be exposed to the elements. So therefore, there's not a lot of acting that needs to happen to be cold if it's cold. No, uh, no but, one had to act that. But, but, no but in a sense, when you need them to act other parts of what the scene requires, how does that conversation work between you and the actor where you know you're pushing them as far as you can push them, but they know there's a job to do in terms of what the scene needs. So how, mm -hmm. do, you, how do you bridge that gap? Well, it's it's usually beforehand because it's really, really. Um, I mean, it's 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 it sounds like a funny ep uh, anecdote to, mm. to talk about the cold, but it gets like a physical enemy, you know, when you're because you're doing you're out there for fourteen hours, uh, kind of, you know, with mm. prep and and wrapping up. You're in the middle of nowhere. It's not like you can just sit in some warm room. And they get tired and they get fed up. So what I try to do is talk about everything that is on that day beforehand and then uh, obviously improvise. And I have to work really around their moods much more than usual because the moods are not – they're not being divas. The moods are really because it's physically exhausting. The, the cold is draining. Like there is this scene where, um, you know, one guy was was dropped in a lake and he gets – you know, pulled out and then they get into this little hut, mm -hmm. this, this boat shack, you know. And I mean, you, if you look at the, the water in the boat shack, you know, they like the little parking garage for boats. The water is solid frozen. That's not done by us. You know, that's that's we're shooting in a boat shack on a frozen lake. And the one dude is naked. You know? <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't on a set. That was a... that was not on a set. That's not possible on a set with a fro when you yeah. want to see. Oh, well, that's impressive. So, so, and you know, the other guy who's not even naked, he's just a little bit wet from the outside. He's already freezing and has a hard time, you know, talking to me about, about all that. So mm. that was, you know, when basically when you say, how did you bridge that grab? It's like, it's, it was just being on a roller coaster, you know, <laughs> you, you hold tight, you scream at your actor, not in a, in an impolite way, just so that, you know, he don't have to stop the camera. You know, yeah. just do this, just do this, and then, and he goes what you know, like all shaking and 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 being in a haze, and it was really it was like a physical enemy. But I think because of that, it's very believable. Like people tell me that they see the movie and they get cold even in the warmth. No, theater. without a doubt, you know, it's it's a fairly uh, it's a fairly harrowing moment. Um, the one you're talking about. Um, yeah. Now, given given the extremes of the weather and then the extremes of the setting, so from one extreme you've got the control of a pathology lab with everybody mm -hmm. doing a very scientific biological job and the conditions mm -hmm. are very static to mm -hmm. somebody falling in a frozen lake or somebody mm -hmm. on a gale force or a uh, you know gale force beach mm -hmm. um, exposed to the elements. What what? What are your conversations like at the start with your cinematographer about about those mix of environments and how you kind of tonally mesh it all together? Because they're not the same, are they not? You know, shooting in a pathology lab, shooting on a lake, you know, but, but they're part of the same film universe. Yes. 
No, I, obviously, uh, um, you talk a lot about style, about camera movement, about the lenses, and, and lock that down. And that usually brings a film already a little bit together, especially if you you know have a color palette. And what what I think helps this is that even the the pathology room, you know, they they're, they're pretty cold because of the, mm. they're working on bodies. So I mean, there is a coldness to almost everything in in this film. Even when it's inside, you can sometimes see the breath even of the actors. And then we talked not so much about how we have to bring everything together because we felt that's already happening because of the the very uh, short time frame that we're covering. And, you know, if it's night on one location, it's night on the other location. You know, there, there's always something that, that unifies everything. Yeah. But we were talking a lot more about contrast. Like, how do we contrast the first pathology from the second one? What is all the hidden? Because they still both have to be professionally viable because she's not doing it in a shack. She's still doing it in a hospital on the island. But we wanted the feel to be totally different from the first one. So we, we uh, built the first one in a, in a very modern architectural building and, and used all sleek uh, um, surfaces and, and modern lights. And the old one we built in a very old uh, kitchen. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's like a kitchen. That kitchen and, and pathology rooms are very similar because they have the, the tiles and everything and all the, the um, cleansiness and, you know, they can be washed out and everything. So we, we took that just as the base and built a real uh, um, pathology in there. And then we had very different lighting that's also had to become gradually more genre-like, mm. you know, because it's also a haunted house kind of story because there's a killer with her in the in the hospital yeah so uh you know we were talking about this much more uh, than than how to unify everything because at this point I, i've shot a lot of movies with with jacob who's the dp of this hmm. and at this point we weren't worried about our style so much as much as uh what is the what does the character need and how does it get scary how does it look different from another you know now um with with a film that's sort of well, you've adapted it from a book, so you've, you've kind of you've created what what you think is the narrative. You then shoot the film. Mm -hmm. uh, what what did you discover in the edit about the story you created? What were what were some of the new discoveries, or or were some of the most pleasing aspects of what you found in the edit about what you created? Well, 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 with this is what was the most pleasing and almost hard was that there were so many. Um, great moments that the actors gave us uh, where sometimes when you're not taking some of them out, you know, mm. it's kind of overkill, you know, because it's not consistent. So we had to strip away some of the the things that I loved on the day. Yeah. You know, I would then discover in the edit, it's like, you know, yeah, this is a great moment and this is a great moment, but right after one another, they cancel each other out. So, you know, so that was a little bit hard and it you know it's like sometimes you wish you could almost offer it with like an alternate version where you pick <laughs> the other one you know so that was hard and then you know it's a it's a it, on on a lot of levels very straightforward and simple story but you know that this comes goes back to this being adaptation you know in the in the book you are also in the head of the killer and every misunderstanding and every time he's somewhere and, and interprets what the other characters are doing, you understand why he's acting in a certain way because you're in his head. And right. that didn't make sense at all for the movie. And it 
doesn't work and it's it's yeah it's just there's many reasons i don't want to spoil it but you know they're, they're in in the book they're more than one person also so mm. it's very confusing so to get that in a, this exposition <laughs> yeah why are people doing what they're doing in a very uh short amount of time and it not being just talk you know it's it was very very hard so i created these little flashbacks of the killer you know mm. in certain moments and uh, also flashbacks of the of the backstory and we shot them with different lenses in a different way so people instantly know this is a different time uh, mm. uh, but that was really hard because you don't want to you you're, you don't have the kind of crime movie where people talk about it all the time you know it's very visceral it's very much uh, in the moment so you know that was just to find that balance and thank god for the test screening because i could double check how many people get everything and not everybody gets everything as always yeah. but you know it was mostly well understood what was going on in the movie so i was i was much more confident in after that screening to really yeah i guess check. i guess your ultimate aim must have been to get is this film the frantic search of a father yeah if it's not that then it's not the film is it in a way yeah yeah, but you know, you, you know the the conspiracy. There's a kind of conspiracy in there. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, trying not to spoil anything, but you've seen the film, so there is a kind of conspiracy aimed at the father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the killer is not part of the conspiracy, and that could be very confusing, you know, mm. because it's two things going on at the same time. And in the actual novel. There was two more things going on that I already took out. But, you know, when you took them out, when you take them out, they, they had to be replaced somewhat, you know, because you. sometimes uh, Linda experiences things that were done by the other storylines that are not existing anymore. So that was up until even to the test screening, not just my edit, but even including the test screening was something I was very nervous about if it is too much information, too little information, you know, so we went back and forth. And I think after the test screening, I took like two lines back in where people were confused. I say, okay, we, we need those two lines back in because there's a little confusion here. And uh, that's what I love test screenings for. I hate test screenings if the studio wants to see if the movie is worthwhile their effort. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, that, that, is, that is a bad uh, reason for a screening, I think. But... Um, to basically clarify possible confusions that you can't think up because you're so in the project. That's what I love them for because you can ask them questions like, did you understand that, that, uh, Darth Vader is the father of Luke Skywalker? And if, if 20 people say, no, I had no idea, then you know, you need that line clarified. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, that's, no, totally. that's what I love about them. Well, look, let's tell people when they can see the film. It's, uh, Friday, the 23rd in, uh, in the main screens, so it's on Arrow video screen and Horror Channel screen, and it's 12.45 in Arrow, and it's 1.15 on the Horror Channel. It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Yeah, it was a pleasure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.